listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Two weeks ago, I was out fishing, um, and we fished by net using the, the under the under the lake, on the ice under the ice in the lake. And okay, I've seen films of that. And in two hours, I caught 117 Arctic so holy smokes so i <laughs> then that was full um so i gave lots away half of it away to my buddy who was there with me and i gave lots um to the people that were out there and when we come back here we just give it out out to elders so uh yeah i got yeah, uh, yeah. i got cool maybe three left <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, that's a good day fishing. Yeah, for good sure. haul, man. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Good size too. So last week when we were, were they? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. We, um, I, I go ice fishing just close to my house here and most of them are just sort of like, like small. They're only like maybe mm. eight inches long. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, last week when you were, uh, you sent me some emails, you sent me some pictures. Mm-hmm. Right. Remember you said like it was, it was t-shirt weather. It was minus 25, <laughs> which was t-shirt weather for you. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. But, um, so, so the, the, the structure, like you said yesterday, when we talked, that's not an igloo, right? No, like it's, it's not. No. Uh, <clears throat> igloo is, uh, okay, igloo what? is when uh, you build it, um, like for three or four people, but when you're, Building a, a structure like that, the big, big size igloo, it's called a kagir. And what that means is it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an igloo, but there's a different name for it. And it's used to for festivities, mm-hmm. like drum dances, throat singing, uh, those kind of things. Uh, yeah. And it can hold a huge... Um, number of people so it's just strictly for um strictly for entertainment uh purposes when you built an igloo uh, it's for uh one night's sleep or um you stay there for a few few weeks uh depends on the size of the uh, igloo and and we've been building them for ever since i was a kid uh been building igloos uh we learned it through school uh we learned it through our elders and just the way it's structured uh, you have to angle different way and um uh, if you there's an old inuit, inuit uh, saying that if you can build an igloo you can get married <laughs> So, as a young as a young uh, guy, you you had to really build an igloo yes, if you want to get married. So <laughs> that was our our saying at the time. It's it's still true today, probably because uh, if you can build an igloo in the winter time, you're you're out in the land, then uh, you can go through a little bit of cold situation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, because mm-hmm. the that. The, the pictures you sent me, like it, it was, you know, just for people that are listening, like it, it looked like it must've been maybe close to 30 feet. Yeah. Across it was, diameter. Um, it was the uh, 30 feet in diameter. Um, 
And we used about three, four hundred blocks of snow. But they had to be as, well, as how high would that be? When that it's would all have finished? been uh, at least uh, two story high, maybe almost two and a half, I would say. Holy smokes! Um, but the way it was wow. structured, yeah, um, it's crazy. Yeah, the way it was structured is that um, you had to have two guys uh, from different angles, uh, from the other each side, building it at a, at a, at a in a circle. So, uh, and uh, as you get to the top, so it stayed even. Yes, and you, and you have to angle at a, at a certain angle so that uh, it's not too high. But some people tend to make tall igloos. Some people tend to make um, more inward igloos. And the one that was made uh, was a tall one. <laughs> and we had to use about uh, three. Well, what we did was uh, we used two scaffoldings. And then uh, we put uh, two sleds at the bottom. And then we had to build another box, so we put it on top of the scaffolding so that the guy can reach the top. So, um, but because of the the weather um, and because of the the heat from the sun, even though it's like minus twenty five, there's still heat. If you if you get a certain angle from the sun, there's still heat, uh, and if there's no wind. Uh, what what will happen is that uh, it, the igloo will start to um, cave in. And for a structure that size, oh. um, if it starts to cave in, um, then I mean it's like a it's like um, it's like it's not elastic, but uh, it will cave in, uh, and then just a matter of time before it falls and the whole igloo can collapse. So. <laughs> So we were wow. we were very careful. We could we could get people in, but uh, we didn't want to have uh, like hundreds of people in the in the um, in the igloo because it was so so big and it was starting to um, um, uh, get um, like it was almost collapsing. So we had to um, oh, we had to geez. destroy it right away after after it was used. Yeah. Oh wow. Did uh cuz when you sent me the pictures it looked like it was about half built. Did you get one of it completely built? Yeah, that same one there yeah, we had it completely built uh, yesterday uh, after uh, just before noon. So, uh, oh, well, you sh- send send me a picture of the of the completed one and I'll put it up on our our website and then people can see see what course, we're talking uh, we... about cuz uh it's pretty it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. No, really cool. we'll, we'll do that. We'll get that up for for people. So yeah, yeah. And if you want video, we 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 have videos of it too. Oh, oh right on! Wow, seeing yeah. seeing this built, so cool. Right. Well, hey yeah. everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host, and it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. This episode of the Hunter Conservationist Podcast is sponsored by the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House, home to the Fisher Peak Brewery. They're definitely my favorite restaurant. Man, they've got everything you're in the mood for. Some days I go there, I'm feeling a big juicy burger with some crispy golden fries. Other times I'm in the mood for one of their big Jaeger schnitzel and spatzel. 
The specials are always something fantastic like salmon or a giant tomahawk steak. There's no shortage of culinary options, that's for sure. Their food is created by four Red Seal chefs from scratch using local farm ingredients wherever possible. It's a fantastic atmosphere for your family dinner or a night out with some friends. They even have the private room in the basement for your business lunch or private function. The private room is really cool because its windows let you look right into the brewery so you can watch that beer brew as you enjoy a meal. I know all throughout COVID, they were offering takeout meals and frozen meals like pot pies, which is a great option when going out to dinner wasn't an option. Yeah, we love the folks down at the hideout restaurant and brew house. So thanks to them for sponsoring this episode. Maybe if you live in Cranbrook, maybe you're just passing through as you're listening to this, but do yourself a favor and stop by for a bite and a pint. This episode is also supported by iHunter. So imagine this, it's pitch black and you're closing the distance between you and that gobbler that's just going ham in his roost tree. Creeping in, you come up to a fence line. Uh Uh-oh. Is it just rangeland fence on crown land, or is it someone's private property? It's getting lighter by the second, and your window of opportunity to set up is closing fast. You whip out your phone, you open the iHunter app, zoom into your location, you see that both sides of the fence are crown land, you're good to go. You cross the fence, set up, He flies down, runs straight to your calls, sees your decoys, puffs up, then he busts you and he runs away. Oh well. At least thanks to the iHunter app, you were able to confidently confirm that you were still hunting him on public land. So iHunter app, go check these guys out. They're pretty awesome. Awesome, thanks. Well, everybody, um, we have a really special guest uh, on our show today, um, Paul Earnhardt. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. So, Paul, you were the director of in- wildlife and environment for the Nunavut Tanavik. Yes. Incorporated. Uh, yes. So, is that the government, or is that a, a development corporation of the government? Well, what happened was um, in the nineteen nineties, uh, way before the, before that, uh, they started negotiating the land claims agreement uh, for Nunavut. And in 1993, there was the signing uh, of the claim. So it's a birthright uh, in a uh, uh, land claims organization. And we look after uh, the claim. uh, And from that, uh, we came to an agreement with the federal government and we um, uh, we had a modern, one of the mo- more modern treaties for uh, land rights, uh, harvesting rights, um, hunting rights, and land land uh, acquirement. Um, we're probably the largest private landowners in the world. If you look at the the whole map of Canada, especially um, the map of Nunavut, uh, we own quite a bit of land. Um, on top of that, uh, we came to an agreement with the, the federal government where uh, we have access to the crown land and we can harvest and 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 do our hunting, uh, our day-to-day livelihood uh, in, on crown lands and parks if they're created. Um, and uh, 
we have three regional uh, Inuit organizations that um, are, are looking after uh, the people in the West, the people in the middle of, uh, of Nunavut and then the East. So, um, uh, and they're responsible for looking after their own people in those regions. Um, and, and, uh, and we're like the, uh, the, the, um, the, um, the main uh, organization that looks after all the three regions. So, and that's why we have. Okay. Okay. Uh, I get it. We, yeah. We make sure that the government adheres to the land claims uh, that we agreed to, that Inuit, Inuit rights are protected under the claim. Okay. Okay. Now, is is this is this because this podcast is we're recording it a bit early, but it's coming out. Folks are listening to it right now on the first of April. Mm -hmm. So is is this correct? When I was doing my research, that it was April first, nineteen ninety nine, yeah, under the Nunavut Act and Nunavut Land Claims Agreement, that Inuit gained independent government of Nunavut territory. That was twenty two years ago. That's right. So, <laughs> yeah. And so technically today on April first is your twenty second anniversary. Yes. Her <laughs> birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really cool. Thank you. Wow. Wow. Now as you're in your position of director of wildlife and environment, um maybe just tell us a little bit kind of what, what your job entails. <laughs> Yes, um, in our agreement, uh, there are sections of the agreement, and one of the uh, sections, which is uh, Article Five of the Nunavut Agreement, it it strictly talks about the um, the steps that the government and the and and Inuit have to take uh, in order to um, to um, practice daily uh, harvesting and 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 look after the wildlife. Um, there's different um, organizations that are are established under that article, and we um, make sure that we have Inuit that are protected uh, in terms of um, if they go into the the parks, uh, they can bring firearms. If they go into uh, Crown land, they can bring firearms. If they go into Inuit-owned lands, um, of course, they could, they would be able to uh, bring their firearms and 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 practice harvesting um, of the uh, of their rights uh, under the claim. So there's different steps. It, it's a huge uh, section of the claim, uh, and it's the largest uh, article in the Nunavut Agreement, uh, and we have to protect. Um, uh, like I said, Inuit harvesting rights and Inuit rights under that claim. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. That's a big, uh, that's a big responsibility you have. And, and uh, I, I saw on the website, there's like about 10, 10 staff that work under you in in the wildlife and environment department? Yes, there were, uh, we have different, like I said, we have different regions. Uh, our main uh, main office is in rank, called Rankin Inlet. And I have like, uh, I would say about five or six staffs over there. And then we have um, people down in the south uh, that live down south, in, like in near Montreal and some in Ottawa. 
And then we have people here in Eklarit, uh where our entire main office is, and that's where I'm based. And that's because of the um, the, uh, the ter territorial government is based in Eklarit, and also uh, the Wildlife uh, Management Board is based in Eklarit, and all the other regions. Uh, the main government, federal government, is based in the Khalid. So it's why we're based here. Oh. Okay, makes makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, did you did you grow up there where you are now? Is that is that your is that your home? <clears throat> no, I I grew up further north, um, in a in a small community called Iglulik. But uh, I was born between. Uh, Paninlet and Iglulik on the mainland. There was no no doctors, no nurses, nothing. It was just my my mom, my dad, and my brother, sister, and my other brother. There was about five or six of us, and it was my mom that brought me into this world all by herself. <laughs> She's done that a few times. So, wow. so <laughs> we grew up with no wow. no nurses or doctors when we were growing up. But uh, yep. Yep. wow! But they would fly in once a year in a big DC three plane to the communities with the <laughs> skis and whatnot. So they would land. It was the first time I ever saw a plane. When I was growing up, it was pretty awesome. Wow. <laughs> wow. Do you, do you, uh, do you often get a chance to, to go back where, where you grew up and, and go visit uh, the land and. Well, not to my birthplace cause it's, they were traveling from, um, Pondlet to Glulik in the springtime uh, when I was born. So, but I go up to Glick, uh, every chance I get, uh, most of my family lives up there and, and I go up there to, especially in the springtime where it's so beautiful. You can just go up there in springtime. Um, what I like to do is, is go out there, collect eggs from geese, ducks, you name it. And, and do some fishing too. Uh, it's Pretty good place to f do some f some fishing, and also hunt uh, seals and walrus and and beluga. Okay, yeah. cool. Are those um, are are going back and doing those? Are those things that you remember? You remember as as a boy? Like are those some of your like real favorite memories? Uh, yes, uh, one of the things that. Um, uh, I, I can re really remember is uh, living in a in a sod house. Uh, it was made of um, uh, soil, and the roof would be made of um, any any type of wood that they could get their hands on. They would make the roof, and also uh, have it covered in skins on top and and soil on top. And that was our sod house, and that's what I grew up in. Um, as a as a as a young boy, and there was there would be like uh, four or five sod houses, uh, small community, small area, maybe less than fifty people uh, in that in that camp. 
and these would these comps would exist wow. all over, uh, and and there would be a leader in that group, and then um, I remember. I guess my parents were told your kids have to go to school. So uh, mm. they were told, well, you, you're going you're gonna to have to live in a wooden house and a wooden house will be provided for you with a warm stove. And, and then you have to put your kids to school. And so we had to move out of that camp and move into a settlement. <laughs> I remember uh, we were, it must have been springtime and we were traveling by dog team. And we were traveling there and I, it was so warm, I just fell asleep on the komotik, which is the, uh, the sled. And I remember waking up, my mom waking me up and said, we're here. And I looked around and I'd never seen so many people. There must have been less than 100 people. But it, to me, it was like a huge crowd. Everybody would just come out and to shake hands. And that's when I learned that uh, we were moving into a settlement. We didn't have any um, house right away, so we lived in a tent. Uh, and... I, I I knew my my parents were must have been worried because um, it was winter was coming and we were living in a tent and somehow we got into a small little what we called a matchbox house. It's just a a, a room with a small little toilet, no running water, a stove, and I think it was a barrier between one room, but open, open rooms. And there was eight of us in a, in a uh, probably 10 by 12 uh, little house for eight of us. Wow. <laughs> and that was I our introduction. I a matchbox house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was our introduction to, uh, to the settlement. So, and I must have been about, wow. I must wow, have been geez. about five years old at the time when we, we moved into, into the, the community of uh, Iglulik. And in my lifetime, uh, I'm a little over 60. Uh, in my lifetime, things have happened. <laughs> uh, Communication-wise, I can talk to people around the world, basically. When I was growing up, we didn't have any TV, we didn't have any phones, we didn't have a running water, we didn't have any toilets. Well, we had toilets, but uh, they called them honey buckets, <laughs> which means that uh, you, <laughs> you you do your business with business in the, in the toilet, but uh, it's all garbage bags. And then... Of course, you tie them up and take. Okay. That's why they were called honey bucket, <laughs> for some reason. Anyway, <laughs> that's 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 what we grew up with. No running water, uh, no flushing toilets, nothing like that. So, uh, uh, wow. it was um, 
it was, and and we were told by the government, you have to move into the settlements. So our parents were told, for the rest of your life, you'll be paying $2 a month uh, for rent. Um, but that's not the case. <laughs> Uh, it was just a way of oh. of getting uh, our families to move into the settlements, and that's what the government promised uh, our parents by promising them the, all these things. Uh, um, and of course, free healthcare, which uh, we really appreciate because um, we didn't realize at the time, and, and that was the promise that was given to our parents in order for us to move into settlements, in order for us to um, uh, to become Canadians, uh, basically. Because um, we were nomads uh, when I was growing up. Um, we had a free reign of, of our territory. And in order for the government, Canadian government to um, claim the Arctic, uh, they moved a lot of families and they moved a lot of families to the high Arctic from other regions like Northern Quebec and uh, some communities from Nunavut, which was to them was very foreign. It was a lot hard on them. Uh, but, um, but in the name of uh, Canadian sovereignty, they moved them up there and and if you, if maybe people don't know about this, but uh, uh, the High Arctic, uh, Ellesmere Island, all those were occupied by Greenlanders. And in order for Canada to oh, wow. to um, to um, claim those uh, that land, they told the Greenlanders to move away, basically, uh, even though they were. They were been occupying that for centuries, and they moved some. Uh, they moved some people from uh, uh, northern Quebec and also from uh, Nunavut up there, so that they can um, basically plant the flag up there and claim claim the islands. Wow! So, yeah. Wow! Wow! <clears throat> what a challenging. History. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, it's um, now it, it's been uh, yeah for a lot of people it's been trying times. Yeah, but um, you know, we're Canadians. We're proud to be Canadians. Hmm. Yeah. And 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 today we're we're celebrating your your twenty twenty second year independence of. None of it territory, so that's that's pretty pretty proud yeah. moment for for totally. you. So and for for us for Canadians for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um. Now, I mean, you, you you talked about like you know as as a kid uh, where you grew up and going back like you know egg gathering, hunting, fishing, and and that was a big part of your life. You said that the the um the lands claim claim agreement that the harvesting rights was the largest the largest part of the 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 agreement so i mean that really i guess speaks to the to the importance of hunting in inuit culture to inuit culture like it just seems like 
it's one and the same. Is that is that a almost a, a fair way to say it? Well, when um, the negotiators um, um, started negotiating the the claims, because um, we were we and to, to this day we are still reliant on on what we can catch out there. Uh, there's very few jobs. Um, there's very few. Um, in fact, we don't have any industri industry up here. Um, the main employer is the government, federal government, and the ter ter territorial government. And we're probably the third largest uh, employer of Inuit. Um, so um, we had to rely on 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 the claim to um, to have our rights enshrined uh, under the constitution because uh, our land claims is constitutionally protected so um, uh, we've seen a lot of um, uh, other aboriginal people uh, in the south especially in the states and also in southern Canada, where they don't have a lot of rights, especially, um, and they're put into little pockets of uh, of land, and they've lost all their rights to other lands where they used to go out hunting, and we didn't want that to happen here. So um, that's why um, I think Article Five is one of the largest um, section of the claim where everything is uh, is uh, is. Um, written to to make clarification as to what rights we have. So, so even, you know, so what you were saying, like, so even today, like the importance of harvesting is, is, is still like, it's super important to, to people for, for feeding themselves. Because like you said, there's, there's not much for industry and imagine supplies coming into the communities and stuff is yeah by, by plane or ship and that can be intermittent and any any supply that we can get uh, up here is seasonal meaning um we um get everything by by sea lift which is uh, ship in the summertime and everything that's because we don't have roads up here we don't have any railroads we don't have any Highways, nothing up here. So everything is brought in by plane. And the further north you go, the higher the price it gets for some reason. Mm. And you're looking at uh, like f uh, everything that's flown in, um, especially uh, perishable st uh, food. Um, even though we have a subsidy uh, by the federal government to um, to lower the prices, uh, it's not always um, it's not always um, uh, felt by any because um, it's so expensive up here. Um, like the further north you go, for a, a four liter of milk, you're looking at at least at least twenty bucks. And for a loaf of bread, holy smokes! Wow. Uh, so for a loaf of bread, uh, you're looking at what? Uh, maybe five bucks, maybe six bucks. 
Yeah, the further further north you go, it's it's like that. It gets it, it gets more expensive. Wow. For for me myself living here um, in Kalu, which is the uh, the main hub uh, before it goes to other communities, uh, uh, there's three of three main hubs, which is Kaluit, Rankin in in Kitamut, and then Cambridge in the west. So those are like the uh, main hubs where all the airlines go through uh, before they go into the smaller communities. So uh, things can get pretty expensive the further north you live. So and wow, it de- wow. it depends on the winter too. Too, if it's bad weather for a few days, you're out of milk, you're out of bread, you or your produce that comes in. Maybe some of it will be frozen. <laughs> so you might have frozen tomatoes <laughs> or frozen bananas or you name it. Uh, and you just have to be uh, uh, fairly uh, uh, resilient uh, when you when you have to harvest. Because um, a lot of times these small communities, the, uh, the people that live in small communities rely on what they can get out from our land. And yep. uh, we're we're law-abiding citizens, and we are told by our governments that um, you have to have quotas. So we have quotas okay. for for animals, Not just like you guys have quotas too for for animals, but for yep. for people that rely on uh, country food, what we call country food. Um, it can get uh, a bit uh, tiring because um, for, let's say, polar bear, we've had quotas for over 45 years. And it's, I mean, it's, it's designed to increase the population at the same time have a sustainable harvest. So... Uh, we don't harvest females with cubs. Um, we don't harvest cubs. We can, under a certain um, elder permission, like not elder permission, but elder need, like if an elder wants um, uh, a cub, um, we can harvest them, but you have to go through certain steps, and it, and it comes out the quota. Okay. And... Uh, okay, but a lot of elders don't don't for once they don't want to do that because they don't want the hunters to lose that quota for the, for themselves for small for small game. Right, for small. Yeah, yeah. So um, we don't. So that's the quota system would be a challenge. Like if there were any anything happened to interrupt, like shipments or movement of you know goods and and food and stuff to communities and it's like if people needed to extend their harvest or you know or something like that Mm -hmm. i i could see that being like a huge problem you know to to like you said you you have you have you know uh people that want to stay with the quotas and then all of a sudden it's like whoa we're we're in trouble here kind of thing that 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 must be an unreal struggle. Well, it's a struggle because um, uh, 
polar bear, if you look at polar bear, it's become an, a, um, a, a poster species for 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 um, animal rights groups um, and the climate change uh, issue. Uh, they use that mm-hmm. uh, image uh, uh, of polar bear um, uh, to their advantage. And it's been a struggle because... Um, uh, the price of um, of um, uh, polar bear hides have really gone down. Um, even though polar bear is the most regulated heart, uh, species in Nunavut, probably in the, in the world, um, uh, it's heavily regulated, and we can only catch so much uh, per community. Like for instance, um, for a community of 2,000, uh, let's say there's maybe five, 600 hunters, and the quota for polar bear is like um, uh, maybe five for 500 hunters. That's wow. That's that, and and the way the system is, uh, if uh, if you have defense kills. Um, if you're trying to protect, because you have the right to protect life and property uh, under the claim. Um, yep. If you try and protect yourself or your property and, and you kill a female, which is a lot of case in the communities, because people go out hunting and people sleep in tents or cabins and, and a bear will come in and they have no choice but to protect themselves. They try their best. They try their best to drive it away, and they keep coming back. So uh, after a while, they just say, "Okay, well, we have to shoot the uh, the bear." And a lot of times, no. it's a, it's a female with cubs. So so uh, under the system, uh, we had uh, if you shoot a female. You automatically lose two tags, two color, two tags for for uh, polar bear. So if you had, uh, let's say, if you had five tags for the community, and you harvest one female, you automatically lose two more tags. So you're you're left with two. So it it, it was a real hard time for for a lot of the hunters. Um, so. What what happens was that um, the organization that the hunters trappers organization in each community, which each community has, they um, they they're the ones that look after the quotas. So a lot of times they were setting aside tags uh, just for defense kills, so that uh, they don't get penalized. And if you harvest more fe- for more males than females, then you um, you get credits. But um, uh, you have to request those credits uh, from the government. So it's okay. a, it's a system that okay. we've been using wow. for four to five years, which, like I said, is geared towards increasing the population at the same time, at least have a harvest. Yeah. So. So are you seeing like what what are what are people seeing on the land with polar bear populations? Um, like are they seeing increases? Are you seeing more conflict because of 
how the environment's changing? Like what, what, what are, what are you hearing from people? Uh, well, uh, we know cause, um, we we're out there. Well, a lot of these hunters are out there 24 seven, almost every day out there <laughs> harvesting and they, and they come back and they tell stories just like you and me. This is what I saw. This was the condition that I saw, the ice condition that I saw, the animals that I saw. And they give a, a, a number, that the number of animals that they've seen. And they go on the local radio and every hunter will, loves to talk. <laughs> They like to talk about their, their day. <laughs> so um, they talk about what they saw. And 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 science, science will back it up. Uh, they're saying that uh, there's a lot more bears. And that's what Inuit have been saying for the longest time, because the way the system is, it's geared towards increasing the population. So... Um, there's a lot more bears out there. And in two years, two years ago, there was sadly um, two people that died because of polar bear attacks. Um, mm. And we we hear that all the time, people encountering uh, bears, the, the bear-human conflicts are, are increasing. And we cannot um, have... Um, Cash meat, because what we what we do is uh, we will cash meat for winter, because you have to, um, in order mm -hmm. uh, to have food in the winter time. Uh, but those cash meats are being uh, eaten by bears. So the government has tried to um, have bear uh, prevention measures, uh, where we they provide us with gates for our, our cash meat but you can only um do so much <laughs> so um yeah uh, to, to keep a polar bear out yeah yeah and and polar bears are smart um they're they're very intelligent pe uh, animals um, and we we highly uh uh not appreciate but we highly respect them um, and mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. we don't want anything happen to them because uh, it's for our future we have to have uh, bears in the yeah. future yeah so conservation is has been part of our life uh, way before the word conservation was ever mentioned to us uh we were con uh we had to leave a certain area uh for a long time so that the uh, animals and the land can replenish itself so you don't uh, harvest anything in a certain area uh for a very long time and then come back to it uh when all the animals have came back so uh, we're very yeah. conservation-minded people, and and it was easy for the yeah. government to um, to take advantage of that. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Now, 
I, you know, I read, you know, some of the, the scientific reports from, from scientists that are studying um, polar bears and Arctic sea ice. And, and I understand this relationship between how long and how early the ice um, develops on the ocean and whether the polar bears are out hunting seals on the ice versus being on the land. Um, are, are those, are those things that, that people are seeing on the land as well? Like, like ch those changes in the relationship of when the bears are on land, when the timing of the ice and it, like what, what, uh, what effects is that, that causing? <clears throat> yes. Um, like we were, we were, we will be the first one to, to say that climate change is happening because we're experiencing it more up here uh, than anywhere else. Um, so we're not denying that climate change is happening. It is happening. We've been saying that for mm -hmm. a very long time. We don't, Like I said, we don't have any factories. We don't have any means to increase global warming, uh, global emissions gas emissions, um, but we're being affected by it. And we're seeing our animals being affected by it. And for sure, uh, we're seeing a lot more bears um, on land because we've had that system, like we've had that system for a very long time to increase the bears. Uh, Inuit saying is that um, any animal that increase, including humans, if they become too numerous, <laughs> there's two things that's going to happen, especially for uh, a top predator like a polar bear. First, they'll eat themselves out of food. And the second one is that they'll, they'll get really skinny. And that's what we're seeing. There's too many bears out there, mm -hmm. and they're eating themselves out of food. Uh, if you go to a smaller communities, they're going to say that there's hardly any more seals. Even though Inuit rely on seals, bears rely on seals. Um, and the bird colonies, uh, they're being decimated by bears because um, one bear can go through a whole colony and decimate um, the duck colonies. Um, so um, it, it, we're trying to manage it, uh, but um, we're we're seeing a lot more bears out there. And for somebody that don't know the system that we've been under, and also for someone that um, only see pictures of beautiful white. Uh, polar bears, cubs, and whatnot, um, they don't see the big picture. And and mm. we, like I said, we want uh, polar bears for a very long time. We want them to be out around for a very long time. And we want them to be healthy. We want them to be uh, thrive, thriving. But uh, we have to manage them. We've always managed our species up here. For a very long time, and yeah, for a top predator like that to be numerous, they're they're going to eat everything out, uh, and 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 that's what we're starting to see. We're starting to see them come into communities. We we do our best to drive them away, and 
they keep coming back, especially the the uh, the, uh, the ad adolescent uh, bears. They're the most dangerous ones. Uh, okay. We call them uh, uh, um, uh, what? There's a name for it, and it escapes me right now. But um, these young uh, bears have just left their mum. Um, they're on their own. They're half starving, and they're the most dangerous ones. Yeah. Uh, the older ones, they'll run away. Right. But these ones, they have no fear. Absolutely no fear, and they'll come after yeah. you. Yeah, they're, uh, they're they're yeah they're they're looking for food, and like you said, they're 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 hungry. Mm -hmm. Now there must be a really important balance between the polar bear population and seals and fish, right? And and like too many seals, they must have an impact on fish, which people need as well. And then, you know, like you said, now polar bears are, are high. And so they're running out of seals, which people also need. And then the polar bears are, are, are getting into more conflict or they're spending more time on land eating the duck eggs. Like it, it's this, it's this really connected circle, which I, I would gather from what, you know, what you were saying, that's, what what Inuit people were closely connected to for 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 a long time, kind of managing that relationship, mm -hmm. and also um, uh, respect for you for the animals. You have to have respect for the animals, mm -hmm. and uh, that's yeah. the number one thing that you do is you have respect for the animal, and you, you don't you don't handle uh, animals. Or you harass animals, uh, uh, unless if you're going to harvest them, and that's one of the things that yeah. uh, we were, we've always been um, uh, against is intrusive research, and what they do in uh, in in Nunavut now is that um, we force our governments. Um, because uh, through our land claims, we force our governments to adopt different methods for researching uh, bears. We don't want to. Okay. We don't want them handling bears. We don't want uh, uh, them uh, taking the tooth out from bears because that's what they do. They take the small little tooth out to study them. They put collars on the bears. Um, and they cannot they cannot collar male bears because their necks get too big, uh, and they could they could choke them. They only collar females bears. Okay. So um, uh, what we asked our government to do is uh, you can do research on the bears, but do it non-intrusively. So they've started doing uh, biopsy darting. Okay. So um, that's one way of studying bears. Oh, they get a little a little piece of the dart goes in and falls out with a little yes. piece of tissue. Yes, and then they can do DNA analysis, exactly. and they know yep. if it's the same bear yeah, and who's yeah, related yeah. to who. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, cool. Um, so, is is that? Uh, I was doing a little bit of reading. Um, there's the the national Inuit strategy on research, mm. and and it looked like these were some of 
the types of things that were in in the strategy on research was that that Inuit people wanted more of a say on what was being researched in Nunavut territory and how it was being done and who is benefiting from from the research. Yeah. Is that is that a is that a very important framework for wildlife management? It is very important because um, uh, what what um, what you have to do is um, uh, like I said, you have to have respect for the animal and how how they do research. Uh, for instance, um, um, we have set up uh, what we call um, uh, uh, research um, uh, research um, uh, department. In our, in our organization, and what we're doing is uh, we're doing uh, trichinella uh, testing on walrus and bears. As you know, trichinella on oh, walrus too. Okay, it, oh. it started out with walrus because uh, uh, it can pass it on to uh, to humans. The meat, the uh, the uh, the parasite yep. in the in in the in, in the walrus called trichinella. Yeah. So how, do, yeah. how do the walrus end up with it? From the clams, from our, our understanding, from the clams. The clams have it, and what oh, they do is they wow. eat the clams, and then it, and the, and and it can pass it on to humans. So. Um, oh wow! And, and of course, the polar bear eats the walrus, so it goes to the wall uh, bear, <laughs> polar bear yeah. too. So. Um, yeah. We're we're doing. Um, uh, testing of the tongue. That's where you can really see the um, the parasite. And hunters will harvest a, a, a walrus, and then they send the uh, sample to us, and we do it uh, the testing here in in the Kaluit. And it takes us a few hours, and then we um, we relay the message back to the hunters in the communities that it's safe to eat the meat. So they go ahead and. And, her, and eat the meat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That. Wow. Wow. Huh. Yeah. We we worry uh, or, or have to be be careful with trichinosis in uh, black bears. Yes. Uh, here when when we hunt and it's it's uh, just um, th- there's no testing, but we just know to cook it. Um, yeah, black bears and cougars. Yeah, yeah, a little, a little longer, and and uh, and that sort of thing, and and then generally it's never an issue. But uh, yeah, that's why it kind of surprised us. Like we always, we would know anyways of trichinosis being in the top uh, apex predators, but not not like a, a marine mammal. So that yeah. that's super yeah. interesting. Not only that, we're finding now we're with the with not only that we're finding that. Um, Cat feces from the south. Uh, you you would when you, people have cats, they they throw the feces in the some some of them throw it in the in the toilet and it goes through the sewage system, mm-hmm. and the and the sewage is dumped into uh, into into the sea. And we're finding that cat feces uh, has been known to. Uh, being belugas now, especially the St. Lawrence beluga. Um, they're finding cat feces, uh, the parasite in the cat feces in the beluga because of the of the, uh, the, wow. the water Jeez. that they swim in. So 
it, it goes around. Yeah. And, and then that's dangerous to people. I don't know. We that's some, that, that that parasite getting it into. That's something that we're not too clear of. Uh, we don't know if it's dangerous to oh. to, to people, but the transmission of, uh, of 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 a different animal to another animal through the parasite is really interesting to to find out. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I was going to ask there was on just sort of, sort of, still kind of like on the topic of pol- polar bear management and and the tags and the quotas. Do do the communities? Um, is it their discretion if they want to use a tag to bring in a guided hunter, like for 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 income? Yes, definitely. Um, How does that work? Well, when when uh, other countries were taking um, uh, bears into the, into their country, like United States, they banned the sale of polar bears. Um, but before that happened, yeah. um, uh, the, Im- the importation yes. for trophies. Yep. Yeah. Before they stopped the the, the trade of polar bear hides, mm-hmm. uh, importation of uh, hides to the to United States, we were getting. Um, fairly good number of hunters from the states coming up north and they would um, uh, pay a fee I do believe it was like 30,000 for for a tag what that what that entailed was that um, the, uh, the the hunter would pay the the, the hunters trappers organization they're the ones that would bring out the guide. They would provide the guide, and the the hunt had to be done uh, without machines. So they had to um, have uh, dog teams. Um, uh, so no, no snowmobiles. Well, the snowmobile snowmobiles can come from behind, like carry all the gear like tents and you name it, but the actual hunt itself had to be done by dog team. And on top of that, um, the seamstress in the communities provide the clothing for the harvester, the hunter. Uh, So so that 30,000 was divided into a a lot of different people in the community. So it benefited the, the community as a whole. Um, and the meat yeah, totally. was and the meat was distributed because the hunters not going to take the meat they they're more interested in the hide and and the and the head so yeah, yeah. the meat was distributed to the community so it, uh, thirty thousand even though it looks a humongous amount when you really look at the the value of the that one hunt to the community it was it was huge. Uh, the benefits were huge. So the value of the yeah. meat, if you look at it economically, uh, the value of the meat was, I don't know, up there. And and, and, the, and the income that the seamstress uh, got for providing the, the warm clothes for the hunter, they got some income too. So it, it was divided and it was passed around. So not passed around, but given to the community. So one one tag 
could benefit the community a lot. But uh, the hunters and trappers organization would only set aside so many tags for back then for for guided tours, guided hunts. The rest was for the community. Um, yeah, and it, the rest for the for the hunter to either sell the hide, which they did to to at the auction house, and and that's how the community would benefit. So, wow. So so back when the United States was was proposing to uh like they're they're having talks about banning the importation of polar bears back into the united states um i found an old um newspaper article um from 2016 and and you were part of uh a group of representatives that went to washington is is that what it was to to speak to to us officials about this and and um this this really this really impacted me but um if if the newspaper quoted you properly um at that time in that article you said um when we go home you and me we open the fridge and there's food there yep but for a lot of families in Nunavut they don't have any food in the fridge when people stop trade of any kind, not only polar bear, but seals or what have you, that's the only source of income for a lot of families. Yeah. And when they talk about uplisting and they stop trade, they affect a lot of families. We are trying to portray that in our meetings, but I think their minds are set based on predictions of what will happen. Mm -hmm. That's so And unfortunately that that importation ban went into effect, didn't it? That was the, the what's called the CITES. Um, it's um, it's an international organization, and each country can um, propose a, a ban uh, of certain uh, species. And polar bear was one of them. Um, so, um, um, uh, Convention on International Trade on Endangered Species, that's CITES. Uh, they they can um, impose um, bans or uplist a certain species to Appendix 1, which would stop all trade. Appendix 2 mm -hmm. is not so uh, bad because you have to have, um, you have to show that it's managed. And that's what the uh, polar bears were under for a long time is Appendix 2. But when it comes to Appendix 1, then trade of that species completely banned all over the world. So um, that's what we were down in the States for, was for, because U.S. was thinking about uplisting uh, polar bears to Appendix 1. And uh, okay. Through our, our, the help of the federal government, especially Environment Canada, Climate Change, um, and other organizations, we went down to the states to uh, to speak to uh, uh, United States Fish and Wildlife Service, and also top officials in the, um, the in the administration, and we met with them, and a lot of them were 
it was surprised because uh, a lot of the uh, NGOs were down there too, especially um, uh, IFAM, also WWF, and other animal rights groups had a huge impact on the government. Um, so after 45 years of being under this quota system and trying to follow the system for a very long time, uh, and we're trying to manage the bears the way it's supposed to be managed, we follow the rules. We follow, use quotas. We do not harvest females with cubs. We we only harvest uh, up to the tag. And if there's defense kills, it comes off the tags. So we've tried to follow that system for a very long time. And, and we're seeing more and more bears under that system, which is good. Uh, but um, to the point where our our people are getting in uh, in danger from uh, bear conflicts. So yeah. when when they were trying to impose uh, bans, um, you're right. It affects a lot of people, not only in terms of uh, food security, but uh, any little income that they can get out of these regular heavily regulated. Um, uh, uh, system, uh, they get penalized because um, it's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. It's a byproduct of the harvest, and uh, yeah. and uh, when countries think about uh, banning things like ivory or polar bear hides or seals, seal hides, because under that. Seal ban really affected a lot of communities. It affected a lot of Inuit because mm. it's a byproduct that um, we could make a little bit of money. We don't make a lot of money from from the byproducts of these uh, animals. Uh, so yeah. uh, it, it's very devastating for for communities that don't have a lot of income don't have a lot of jobs. And now we're... Uh, and one of the things that... Go ahead. So, yeah, one of the things that's sort of was, you know, what you're saying that was really sort of struck me um, is there is the Nunavut Harvester Support Program, mm-hmm. um, which is which is helping hunters recover costs, purchase safety equipment, uh, you know, those types of things in order to be able to hunt on the land because of the expense of those things up there. And, 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 and I, I just wanted to bring that up and maybe you speak to it, but I really want people to understand like how incredibly difficult it is to hunt in the Arctic and then to pay the expenses to be able to hunt and be safe safe and have communications and, you know, and be, you know, everything that you would want to be safe on the land, um, but to not have these income sources, whether it's from the hunt or something else. And so, 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 so the government has a harvester support program where they can, they can uh, apply to help recover costs of, of going out on the land and hunting. And 
Um, did, did do I understand that that sort of correctly? That's what the Harvester program is about. Well, that Harvester uh, support program um, came from the, the agreement, the Nunavut agreement uh, that we signed. When that uh, agreement came into place, the federal government um, put, I think it was 50 million into the program. And we, as an organization, organization put 50 million too. But that had to stretch. That was a one-time deal. So that hunter support program had to stretch. And uh, there was a program where um, you could buy um, big ticket items like canoes, outboard motors, skidoos. But um, but the hunter had to pay some of it back. They bought it at a reduced price. And okay. that was a part the hunter support program, but it could only last for so long Um, because we tried to uh, have interest on that. We didn't touch the principal for a very long time. We tried to uh, use the interest to purchase equipment. But uh, the way it was structured, uh, we weren't uh, able to retrieve all the, uh, the, the, the costs purchasing those equipments back into the program. So, of course, the program ra- eventually ran out of money. And, and of course, the, the government said, this is a one-time one, dot, one time deal, that's it. So, so <laughs> we had to uh, really look at our, our, our own money and, 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 and provide other means of um, providing our hunters now we're more into small items like uh, satellite phone, GPS, small equipment, uh, what we call small equipment, because we can't afford to um, okay. to purchase um, big ticket items like canoes and uh, outboard motors or skidoos anymore. Because mm-hmm. if you if mm-hmm. if you want a really good skidoo today for a 900 Ace Turbo, like which is a really good skidoo, uh, you're looking at over 20,000 20, for skidoo. <laughs> so, for yeah. for a person that doesn't have income, wow. how are you gonna how are you gonna how are you gonna provide for your family? So it's pretty yeah. hard. Pretty hard. So when so when the impact to the value of uh, and the market for seal. Uh, and and the polar bear, like that was an like a, a a double kind of impact, like the the cost of hunting going up, and then lose you know the the harvester support program money running out, and and then all of a sudden the hunter's income is being impacted by these different bans and campaigns going on uh, around the world. That's wow. That's 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 a huge huge impact. Um, but but are are Inuit hunters persevering through it? Like, are they still wanting to go out and hunt? Like, are are people still love hunting and they they want to do it? Like, are are they are you know are people losing losing interest, losing hope? Well, um, we survived this long up here. 
Um, <laughs> and we're going to survive into the future. Um, and part of our survival of survival is the land and what it provides us. And of course, um, people love to go out hunting. People love to go out gathering. And mm. we'll continue to do that. Uh, for the younger generation who are more educated, uh, who's getting more educated, um, the opportunities are, are there uh, in terms of mining, in terms of the government jobs. But um, for hunters, it, it's difficult, it's hard, but um, um, if you go into smaller communities, um, the food security is more important than than income in a lot of these communities. And, okay. and you help yep. each other. Um, you don't expect payment for anything that uh, you catch. Uh, you give it away, especially to the elders, especially to to people who don't have means to get out. So that's why, even though I, it seems like I harvested a lot of fish, uh, like I said uh, earlier, it all goes to the community. So uh, that's what we do up here, and and we'll survive our. Are, are these hard times, even though it's going to get harder. But, yeah. um, and it's going to get uh, difficult, but we have to, we have to persevere and we will. Hmm. Yeah. Now, one of the things I hear, you know, people, you know, that, I mean, I guess for better way of explaining it, are opposed to polar bear hunting. Um, you know, they're they're out there. They're having an influence on governments. Uh, I hear this uh, this this argument presented that ecotourism uh, can be a way to make uh, income and have an economy off of wildlife and polar bears without you know, having to harvest them or to have, um, you know, the guided hunters come in, like what we were talking about earlier, the revenue from that. But I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I'm from the picture you're painting when you're talking about no roads, no infrastructure, the difficulty of traveling on the land, probably the, the difficulty of actually like finding animals. It probably takes a long time, you know, and skilled hunters to find them that that just doesn't seem like a place where a, a, a tourist economy could could thrive? Not, not really, um, but um, our government is, is trying to help in some ways. One of the, um, one of the um, uh, factors in, in having a tourism industry up here is insurance. Because if anything, oh, should, wow, really? yeah, <laughs> if anything should happen to the the tourists, uh, if you're a guide, especially, and you're taking yeah. somebody out, and something <laughs> should happen, like for instance, um, uh, a polar bear attack or anything like that, you you can get sued like crazy. <laughs> uh, so insurance is oh, is a big issue, and a lot of these um, guides don't have the knowledge. Uh, to um, go get proper insurance, 
Um, so the government is trying to help in that sense. But um, the way Inuit belief is that, um, like I said earlier, you do not harass an animal and unless you, if you're gonna if you're gonna harvest it, if you're gonna use it for food. Uh, even smallest thing like a mosquito, you don't you don't you don't um, play with it. You you, mm -hmm. you can kill it right away, but uh, you don't play with it. And for ecotourism, a uh, lot of it is we Inuit views it as uh, in some ways playing with the animal because you're you're not harvesting, but you're harassing them. And it it it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, catch I guess catch twenty two if you want to look at it that way. We want the money. <laughs> we want yeah, or the, the double edged sword. Yeah, <laughs> we, you want the income from the tourism, but uh, at the same time, you don't want your animals to be har harassed. And we see that uh, with the cruise ships that come up uh, in the last few years. Um, they go out to. Um, to islands where the walrus are, and walrus are very sensitive uh, to disturbance. And once they leave that island, they're not going to come back for a very long time. So you make sure that uh, <clears throat> tourist operators uh, 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 adhere to the rules uh, that we have imposed where they're not supposed to go uh, hundred yards from a from an animal, but um, the nature of tourism is that you want to get close to the animals, and yeah, and and when you're out there, who's going to regulate those <laughs> those cruise ships? How are they going to? They they'll do whatever they want once they're out there. So it's it's, it's yeah. it, it can be hard and tourism. I I don't know if it's going to take off, but uh, very few people are going to benefit if it does happen. Right, huh. that's I never would have thought that that insurance would have been like the yeah uh, as as big a thing. I I mean it makes sense because I mean they want you to have insurance for everything nowadays, even have insurance for when you, when you pass on, it's like they try to sell you insurance. Um, so, and it's not, I completely empathize. Like it is not, it's not inexpensive to carry insurance when no. it's to cover, you know, uh, an accidental, um, like an accident like that of a older bear attack. attack. Yeah. So that's, wow. That's, I think these are things maybe people don't think about, you know, when they say those things, it's just like, oh, why don't they just, you know, take photographers out? They don't have to shoot the polar bear. And it's like, well, here's all the things that maybe you're not thinking about from the Inuit perspective. Right. So, yeah, I, uh, I remember as a kid having a national, <clears throat> excuse me, national geographic magazine. And it was one of those great big school buses with the big, huge, snow tires on it yeah. and there's the the photographer was out the window shooting a picture and the bear was like completely up and just like looking right at him like 22 feet up in the air this thing these camera yeah. lens and the bear were nose to nose it's like man yeah but like paul was saying it's like then they go out every day yeah. um 
drive around, find the polar bear. Maybe the polar bear doesn't want to, you know, be bothered that day, but they got to take people out to take pictures of it. And that's just not, not maybe the right thing to do for the polar bear's sake. So that's, that, that's well, a, a very valuable perspective. Yeah. And those things that happen mainly happens out of Churchill. Um, and there's yeah. huge, huge uh, tourism industry down there when it comes to polar bear. And they take them out on tundra buggies, uh, bear bug, bear. Anyway, those machines, big machines. Um, but, um, <laughs> bear, but bear bus. Yeah, bear bus. Why do you want to call them? But, you know, Churchill is in the smack of the migration route for polar bears. That's why they get a lot of bears down there. And if you've seen television shows of those people that live in Churchill where they have dogs, they feed their dogs and at the same time they feed the polar bears because the polar bear will naturally take mm. food away from their uh, dogs. Even though they're trying to sh look like they're um, trying to um, just feed their dogs, it's good for their business because they get tourism and they get yeah. they get television um, footage or television shows of them with their dogs and 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 the problem they're having with bears. But for them, it's good business, <laughs> and they feed the bears, which is totally against our our values and and then they become problem bears. What they do in Churchill, they do a lot of research down there. They collar a lot of bears. And like I said, they cannot collar uh, big males because their necks get too big. They can only collar female bears. And these female bears are just coming out of their dens with their cubs. So they're chasing them with helicopters, immobilizing the, the mother, and putting a, a honking big collar on them. <laughs> and, then, and then to top it off, they take a small tooth out from the, from the bear. And <clears throat> there's no way of uh, knowing that it's creating a lot of pain. Um, I'm sure it is. If you ever had a tooth taken out with no, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> freezing of the uh, of your of your jaw, it's painful. So they're doing a lot. Of, they've done this for over thirty years. Uh, Canadian Wildlife Service has done this research in Churchill, out of Churchill, for over thirty years. They're still doing it. And they can only do that coloring of females. When the female, when they're just coming out of the den, they're very skinny. They're trying to find food. They're trying to find food for themselves and their cubs. And it's a very stressful time for the bear. And now to top it off, they're being harassed, what I call being harassed by, by researchers. And they're being put <clears throat> collars on them. And 
I, I shake my head, head thinking about it. Yes, um, you care for the animals. Mm. You, you, you get mad. I, I get mad when I think about it because um, these bears are trying their best to survive, and I get sorry. I get mad because um, no, understandable. It's hard on the bears, and. Yeah, in the name of science, and hmm. it's there's nothing we can do about it. Um, in in the name of science, so they could be managed, which you know what people were doing for thousands of years without doing things like that to the polar bears. I I I, yeah. I totally understand. That's I think that's why we um we yeah. have pushed so hard to have less intrusive research. We're not against science because it increases our knowledge. Mm-hmm. But the way science conducts themselves and the way they do research, sometimes it's hard because uh, um, it's unnecessary research in a lot of ways. Because um, if you've been doing it for 30 years and if you haven't learned anything, why are you doing that? Um, <laughs> I know they, they're going to have the argument where we have to know about climate change, what the effects it has on bears. That's the argument that they're going to bring out. But but um, I think enough is enough, when, especially on females with cubs. Um, like I said, they're trying their best to survive. They're trying their best to provide for their cubs. And they're and they're and they're and they're mm. being harassed and and to top it off, uh, like I said, Churchill, they um, they have bears that come into Churchill and they put them in what they call bear jail, and they're kept there for months. I've heard about that. And one thing I learned about that, uh, I didn't know about it. I've heard about it, but I I didn't know what they, that. They didn't feed the bears for months in that jail because they figured the bears should be hibernating. So well, they don't really huh. they don't feed them for months and they're not hibernating. They're they're in, in the jail. So <laughs> by the time they get out, they're extremely hungry. And what they do is um, they immobilize them. They put them in the net and they take a helicopter and they drive further north, away from the community. Uh, further north towards Nunavut. And they dump them out there. And of course, what the, the polar bear does first thing is they start looking around for food. And the first community they come across is the Nunavut community of Alkwet. And community of Akwet have seen a lot of bears come through their community because it's a migration route. And they've had a lot of problem bears. And that's where in, uh, a couple of years ago, there was one guy that was killed. Uh, and the sad part is that mm-hmm. his kids were watching as he was being mauled. Oh, jeez. So... Uh, um, 
you have to be very careful when 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 you're handling animals, especially a top predator like that. And yeah, yeah, and you just have to um, you just have to be careful around them. That's all. Yeah. Well, it sounds sounds like there's still a lot of work to do. I th I think to change wildlife management and conservation and what people think about hunting versus ecotourism. I think there's a lot of <clears throat> a lot of very very important things that you said here that you know sounds like there still needs to be change in what the government's asking in what to do and how to manage wildlife it it sounds like changes more changes still needed more maybe more more control more more inuit ways of management versus ottawa management but uh we're we're, we're trying uh and we're managing with uh with the federal it in the last few years they've come around a lot um i have to say uh especially when we got the uh, our agreement uh there was enshrined rights under that agreement and, the, and of course the federal government is part of the signatory of the agreement so they're slowly coming around uh but it's the uh, other countries that uh we have to deal with and that's why we go to other countries to um to um to oh, I see. Uh, educate them that's why we went to down to the states to educate them we have to go we just came from um last year we came from uh, geneva uh, uh international what's it last year or two years ago already two years ago i think before the pandemic hit because <laughs> we had a huge conference uh 176 countries uh, that meet uh, to talk about trade, Holy. and we were we were there. Was that United Nations Environment Program? No, that's a um, Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species. Okay. So CITES. Okay, CITES. Yeah. Yeah. So um, huh. at that time, we had a chance to meet with um, the government representatives from the government of England. Because they're, they're, even though they're imposing to uh, ban ivory, elephant ivory tusk, in their wording, it states all ivory. So, of course, walrus have ivory. Narwhals have ivory. Even though the population is really healthy, even though they're only talking about elephant ivory, which is way out in the other <laughs> side of the globe it's still going to affect us <laughs> so yeah it, it, it's always wow. one thing so you just have lots of work to yes of course yeah lots of work to educate these other countries on on Inuit way of life yeah yeah well I mean it is it is positive that you do say like you see you know some some changes at least in Canada some some progress with with our federal government that's that's encouraging mm. Yes. Wow. Now, one of the things I wanted to touch on a little bit too, just uh, so maybe people un understand this, because this is a fairly recent thing, was the the return of the polar bear hides 
um, mm-hmm. from from the the fur auction house. So, as I understood it, harvesters would would sell their hides, or, or or they would they would get a baseline guaranteed baseline dollar value for them. Then they would go to the the fur auction, and then and then they're sold on on the fur market. And then if they sold really high, then some more money would come back to the harvesters as well. But what happened was the prices were so low right now that the government chose not not to sell the harvesters hides because it would have been at a at a huge loss and and they brought them back to to the community maybe maybe tell people a little bit more about that story in case i don't have it right mm, thank you yes um under like i said under our system um each committee has so many tags that they can um uh, use to harvest bears and the hide, uh, whether it's small or or mediocre hide, they still they are still allowed to uh, sell it. And what the government did was um, they put um, a subsidy where they where they um, well they will pay for some of the hides uh, as a as a uh, payment. Uh, upfront payment to the hunter, um, and then they send the hide down to the auction house, and and then the the auction uh, house tries to sell the the hide, and because the uh, the sale of um, uh, polar bear hides is so low, um, and the uh, the hides might not be the top quality. Um, they couldn't sell them. So, what ended? What happened mm-hmm. was that they they had to send them back. Um, I think there was like three hundred hides that were sent back to the government of Nunavut. And of course, the government of Nunavut cannot uh, get all their money back from uh, the hunters because, of course, the hunters have. I've already uh, spent the <laughs> spent the uh, the money and to live, yeah. And, yeah. and and because these hunters are not making a lot of money, there's no job for them. So any any little income that they can get, they they'll use it right away. So, of course, the government um, was in the hook for the cost of the the hides. So. The good hides, the good quality hides, are still going up for a fairly amount, like five thousand bucks or something like that. But uh, the rest are are not selling, so that's what happened. Yeah. But uh, you know, bring them back. Wow. We'll use them. We'll make uh, pants out of them. Well, we can use them. Uh, it just means that the uh, the territorial government uh, will be losing some some money, and also. The hunters themselves will be losing a lot of income in the future because they're they're not gonna be able to sell yep. sell the hides anymore. So, are the low prices is that is that a factor like cause of the pandemic? Just because of things that are going on in the world, or is it because of this whole the bans and the whole thing about trophy hunting and stuff? Is that impacting? market prices exactly and or do we know 
and and also the uh, the work of animal rights groups have really played a, a, a role in the in it too because um, um, there's no market for for the hides and that's the, what the what these groups want they don't want any animal killed <laughs> and the thing is it's a byproduct uh, the majority of the the use of polar bears for the meat in Nunavut. Um, the secondary part is the income that you can get out of the hides. So uh, I don't know. It's um, yeah. it's it it can be hard, but um, you when when United States first uh, thought about uplisting. Uh, uh, polar bears to Appendix One. The price of hides went shot up. They went really high. It was uh, okay because people felt that okay, we're no longer going to be able to buy polar bear hides anymore. So the price went really high. Get them all you can. Yeah, get them all you can. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's short lived. That's very short lived. Yeah, and. And the uh, end result is um, these heights that uh, the government can't sell anymore. So, but all's not lost. You bring so them back if, and we'll use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean for for sure. I mean, are, is there even if if people made products, um, pants, mitts, like that. You you still couldn't like export those or sell those like unless they were just sold in Canada, right? Like that that would be a Canadian could buy something, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's no um, there's no ban uh, selling to other Canadians for sure. Okay. Hmm. Well, maybe that's something people that are listening to the podcast can watch for is is look look for those businesses and stuff that are in Nunavut that um, manufacture and mitts and garments and stuff from seal and polar bear or whatever. And oh, I'd love maybe, a nice polar bear hat for the winter. <laughs> I mean, there's that's that's a way to help help people out help people out uh, up there because as as you you gather, it's it's a very very tough tough uh place to live uh, very wonderful people but just uh the way the world is looking at these things and what they care about uh in the way of like you said don't want to see an animal killed but not understanding the people that are behind that is is a very kind of sad state of affairs of people out there that call themselves conservationists and 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 disrespect Inuit people and their way of life um you know by what what they're doing so um, maybe, maybe Canadians can help and, and find some, find some warm stuff to wear by that. Um, Paul, I really want to thank you for, for everything you've shared here. It's, uh, it's been wonderful. Um, really appreciate your knowledge and perspectives. Yeah, that was, uh, very engaging. I really liked that. That was really, uh. Well, thank you too, because um, really yeah, because yeah. um, like I said, we're not we're not against science. We're not against uh, uh, harvesting animals. Um, we respect our animals, and and we're like you guys. Uh, 
Southern Canadians respect animals. We're just like the you guys too. We 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 yeah. really respect our animals yeah. and and we want animals around for a very long time, especially polar bears and seals and whales and you name it. Um yeah, thank you. Thank you very and much. I think that's something that all hunters all hunters everywhere in the world share that mm -hmm. that exact thing. I think regardless of the culture you come from, exactly. it's like we respect the animals. We we know we're taking a life, but we use it and we respect it and we honor it. Uh, and we do whatever we can in curtailing our hunting, moving our hunting, everything to make sure that animals are always there and, and standing up and fighting for the land. And, and uh, I think, people that are hunters are going to completely understand everything you've said here today. And if people are listening that aren't hunters, I hope you have like a little better understanding into what's inside a hunter's heart, whether they're Inuit or anywhere else in the world. I think that's the common, common responsibility that a hunter has anywhere in the world throughout history is, are, are, are the things that you've told us here, yeah. Paul. Thank you. Well, we'll stick around. We, uh, Curtis has got a few things to, to say here and then we want to do the little thing to learn some words. Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, so folks, <clears throat> turkey season is almost here. And if you haven't already, head over to thehunterconservationist.com and sign up for our wild turkey hunting masterclass. Designed for the novice or first-time turkey hunter in mind, this interactive course will arm you with the knowledge you need to up your chances for a successful turkey hunt this spring. Along with our masterclass comes our latest film, The Wild Turkey is Calling. Get inside the mind of a turkey hunter as he attempts to gain access to the world of the wild turkey. Uh, I've had some people download it. A couple friends of mine have gave me some good positive words on it there uh, a lot of people are really stoked on it so hop on that stoke uh, the film is available on vimeo on demand uh, the link to that is in both myself and mark's personal instagram i think is it in the Con hunter conservationist instagram yeah it is so all three so if you follow all three of us or one of the three whatever you can go uh, find it there Purchasing the film and the course helps us continue to bring you the content on these podcasts that keep you in the know about everything hunting and conservation related in Canada. We really appreciate your support. So thanks, folks. We would also like to thank the team over at iHunter for supporting this episode. This app combined with the Crown Land subscription is a tool that every hunter should have, new or experienced. There's been countless times, even hunting in areas that I hunt often, that I come across a fence line or something weird, and I just like to double check to give me that peace of mind that I'm still doing everything by the book and everything on public land. iHunter app, if you haven't checked them out already, you really should. And thanks again to the folks down at the Hideout Restaurant and Brew House for sponsoring this episode. Delicious food with local ingredients made from scratch by real certified pros. What more could you ask for? The only thing better than that is to pair it with a local handcrafted brew. And at Fisher Peak Brewery and the Hideout, that is an option. Great food, great beer, great location. The warmer weather is fast approaching here, so head over there, grab some lunch, and hang out on their patio. They will greatly appreciate you. 
for the business. Right awesome. On. Thanks. Thanks, Curtis. So, Paul, uh, Inuit language. Now, I, I'm trying to do a little bit of research to, to understand it. Um, it. Different regions across the Arctic, is it different languages, different dialects? How, how does that work? Explain that. Well, uh, Inuit uh, span across the globe from Russia, Alaska, Canada, Greenland. And our language uh, is almost identical when it comes to species. For instance, polar bear, Nanook. If you go to Green, uh, mm -hmm. uh, in Alaska, it's the same one, Nanook. If, it's, if you go to uh, Chikaka in Russia, it's the same one. Um, and Greenland, it's the same one, Nanook. And then, um, uh, others, other because we have different dialects, it gets kind of complicated uh, understanding uh, <laughs> the other dialects. Even in Canada, we have like three dialects um, in the Canadian Arctic, and then we get other <laughs> other uh, things like what you just said, Curtis, Turkey. When Inuit first saw Turkey, because we yeah, don't have turkeys up turkey. here, because <laughs> we don't have turkeys, we only got them uh, at the at the uh, at the store. They look at Turkey and and they look at <laughs> they look at the the turkey and said, "Holy, that's a big akigik. Akigik is uh, ptarmigan, <laughs> and that's the only way they could relate to oh, okay. big ptarmigan. That, yeah, that's the only way they could relate to the the turkeys a big ptarmigan." <laughs> which means big. Wow. So Akhigirjok is uh, Turkey. <laughs> and okay, wow. Yeah, and if you look at uh, like moose, tuktubak, uh, uh, which means almost like caribou. And uh, deer, okay. uh, deer is uh, same, almost same thing, tuktubak. Yeah. So it's a slightly different, but... Um, it's the same one, um, and okay. And it, what, what about Arctic char? You were talking about that. Oh at yeah, the beginning. yeah. When it comes to kaluk, uh, Arctic char is a kaluk, and then salmon is a kaluk pick, so it's slightly different. And kabisilik is grayling. So here, and okay, and uh, islawak is trout. So, Islawak, trout, kabisilik, grayling, yakaruk pig, salmon, yakaruk, arctic char. Oh, cool. Wow. So I got, um, I got, I got one for you here. I, uh, I'll set the stage a little bit. I, uh, my grandparents had a taxidermy shop for years and years. And when mm -hmm. I was younger, I used to work there. And we had one of these come in and it was the first time that I'd ever seen one in person. And it was a muskox uh -huh. and seeing them in all the Canadian geographic and national geographic and all the, the magazines, you would not think that they are as soft as they are. And I always called it wool, yeah. but I found out 
It's called Kivyet. Yep, Kivyok, which is the inner inner yeah, inner, the- inner 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 wall inside the long hair. It's an inner part of the uh, long and hair. Ever. <laughs> What's and, it called and, again? Kibiok. Kibiok. Yeah. Oh, Kibiok. Okay. Yeah. And so, interesting. Ever, ever since that, I uh, ever since that that came into the taxidermy shop, I had a, I had a bag of it from the the <laughs> leftover hair that I kept, but I I don't know what happened to it over the years. But ever since then, I've always always wanted to get a uh, uh, a toque or something hmm. made from that because it's just. Oh man, it's, it's like so it warm. puts it puts merino wool to shame. It's like, oh man, it's <laughs> yeah. I would love one. Yeah, it's pretty. now. What about like a goose or a duck? Goose or ducks? Um, uh, well, let's go back to muskox. Uh, it's called umigmuk because of um, long hair. It looks oh. like a beard. Ah. So umigmuk, a umigmuk, umigmuk. Yeah. Okay. And also for uh, duck, uh, <laughs> there's uh, different types of ducks that we have up here. We have eider ducks. We have king uh, eider. King eider has the uh, the big, uh, mm-hmm. colorful nose, and we call bump them on, yeah. bump on his nose. Yeah, yeah. We call those king um, um, which because of the nose, and mitok mitok is eider. And look, look okay. is snow goose, and um, there's uh, um, there's look, look can be a goose, uh, either Canada goose or snow goose. So look, look, and there's other names for um, other brand and uh, other geese but uh, it escapes me right now the inuktitut name for it yeah 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 oh wow that is yeah. that is so super cool that is so fascinating so so one one last kind of maybe a word or a phrase so how would you say um goodbye or like goodbye until we meet again mm. something like that yeah which means uh, we'll meet again. Takuragibugut. Takuragib. Takuragibugut. 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 Taku lab, No, okay, I, I got this. Let's, let's do this again. Yeah. Taku la revugut. La. Or maybe you, maybe you should say good night, which means klevugut. Unukatiaget, which is much easier. Okay. Unuk means night. Okay. Katiaget, have a good night. Unuk. Katiaget. <laughs> anyway yeah there we go there we go well we always we always sign off so so paul how about i get you to do it you say good night to everybody until the next episode there all right everybody we'll see you in the next episode what paul said
Paul, thank you so much. You're welcome. Good night.